From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this week, and I am hosting on my own as all three guys are out and about doing other things. I have got the hour to myself, and I decided to do an interview with that hour, and I decided to do that interview with Luke Bourne. Some of you know Luke. Luke came out as a graduate student 12 years ago, worked at Harvard for a bit, was there in the beginning of the motion tracking revolution in sports. He was there when the NBA released their data to a little group at Harvard. He's built a heck of a career since then. He's worked inside clubs. He has trained PhD students. He most recently has moved into ownership. He's a part owner of AC Milan, as well as other other sports teams around the world in other sports. It's amazing what he's done, and I'm delighted to get a chance to talk to him. Luke Bourne is one of the most respected people in sports analytics. He's one of the nicest guys in sports analytics, and he's put together one of the most interesting careers in sports analytics. I caught up with Luke last week in Sacramento, had a chance to hear a little bit more about what he's working on now and how he managed to get there in a pretty short period of time. Here we go with Luke Bourne. I am here in Sacramento, California with Luke Bourne. Luke is a longtime sports analyst, and we are going to spend a little time catching up on his current work and how he got to where he is. Luke, good evening to you. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, and, and thanks for coming out my way. Absolutely. We are holed up, posted up in a Sacramento hotel lobby. We'll have a little elevator noise here and there, maybe some street noise. We try to get some distance from the front desk, but glad to take Luke anywhere I can find him. Luke, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm a little lucky to catch you in country. I know you're bouncing around a fair bit these days. To, to start us out, why don't we just talk about your portfolio of responsibilities right now? Just to, we'll, we'll, we'll eventually want to understand how you got there and what it means and what you're learning. But just to set the stage, how would you describe your portfolio of work right now? Well, I, I just came from coaching U12 girls soccer. Does, <laughs> does that count in the portfolio? That's why we're here. That's exactly why I'm in Sacramento. <laughs> Uh, so I, I really wear two hats. So the first is I'm co-founder of uh, Zealous Analytics. I co-founded that with Doug Fearing. That's a, a sports analytics company. We're currently about 60 staffs, about a third of those with PhDs. Uh, so that's that's one hat that I wear. And the second is I'm part of the group that owns and operates two football clubs in Europe, one of those being Toulouse in France and the other being AC Milan in Italy. Okay, even non-soccer fans have heard of AC Milan. That sounds like an interesting uh, ownership position to be in. We need to hear more about it a little bit. Toulouse, you know, we've heard of various things about Toulouse. Many people won't know anything about the Toulouse Football <laughs> Club. So can you say, just so we understand what you got going on, what, what league are they in? What's the situation with Toulouse over there? Yeah, there's some caveats that, that maybe we can get into later about. I'm actually not currently involved with, with Toulouse, but I can talk a little bit about what sort of the history over the last few years, which is that um, so a little over three years ago, we well, starting about four or five years ago, we started digging and in, in looking at various football clubs around the world, looked at honestly hundreds of them and all sorts of trains taken to the north of England and all that kind of stuff, ended up acquiring, ended up acquiring Toulouse. 
um, sort of right in, in the middle of the pandemic. They had just been relegated. and From what, what league to what league, and yeah, how many leagues are there over there? So, so every, every country has its own sort of tier of leagues. So uh, in France, you have League 1, which is the top league. And league everyone two. knows Paris Saint-Germain is the, is yes, the top exactly. team in League 1? Yes, okay. exactly right. Yeah, Lyon, Lille, uh, Marseille, Monaco. Those okay. are sort of the teams. That, but PSG uh, being the, but the one that most people would recognize. It had just been relegated out of that league into the second tier in okay. France, and we acquired it right after they'd been relegated. And was it like buying a distressed asset? Was it a, was it a fire sale? Kind of, yeah. We had looked at it a year earlier when they were sort of comfortably in in League One, and um, when it came time for relegation, of course, the, the price comes down. And I think the, the, that is the right analogy. You're buying a distressed asset, but you're buying one in a fantastic city with great resources and great infrastructure, and. Um, our thesis was very much, hey, take this, take this club, which was sort of down on its luck, and, and institute a lot of best practices and things we learned in other sports as well as from our previous experience in European football, and um, try and get re-promoted and have some success. Okay, hold on. I, I just got to point out that I, I've known you as an analyst for a long time, and I, I initially thought of you as an analyst because you were an analyst, and now you're saying things like our investment thesis. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's been a, a big transition, right? I think over the last four, five, six years, I've sort of might have sort of pivoted very much. So, so I think a lot of people who might know me from before these last few years know me as an academic, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I did a lot of work when I was at Harvard with a bunch of amazing PhD students. Um, we were some of the first ones to use player tracking data in basketball and in soccer and various other sports. And that led to a lot of high-profile papers and a lot of really, really just fun, engaging work. And, and a, lot of those stu- a lot of those students went on to jobs in academia and working for sports teams and so on. So that's kind of where I come from. But in the last, yeah, four or five years, it's, it's been sort of working together with a group of partners to um, acquire and, and run these clubs. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big jump. We're going to have to hear more about um, how you make that kind of jump. But let's, I want to hear a little bit more on the, on the portfolio. So you've got Toulouse. By the way, they're in League One now, right? So you buy them in League Two, and they're already in League One. That, that's right. Yeah, it, it's we, we've certainly learned a lot and made a lot of mistakes on the way along the way, but um, have have strived to sort of make those mistakes as quickly as possible. And, and so the yeah, the first year, we inherited a club that had a payroll of about thirty four million, and so that's that's player payroll to be clear, and we had to get that under ten, and so we worked really hard the first summer to. Um, bring our payroll in check and sort of get the financial house in order. You know, the, the last thing you want to be doing when you're buying clubs is is writing checks for millions of dollars every year. And so we had to get our financial house in order. We did that really well the first year and had some amazing people that we hired on the ground sort of executing on that. The first year we missed, from a purely sporting perspective, the first year we missed promotion on an away goals tiebreaker, which was kind of frustrating, but th- that's the rules. And how, how far down the tie-breaking list is away goals? Yes, it's pretty, it's pretty far down. And so, we, <laughs> and then the, the second year, when we were still in the second tier, we, we kind of won the league in, in what I will say is like record-setting fashion. I think we had one of okay. the best offenses in, in League 2 history. Uh, so that got us up. That, so that last year was our first year in, um, in, in League 1. And um, we, we had great success, and one of those one of those points of success is we ended up winning the league cup. So, in most of these domestic leagues, you're sort of you're playing in two leagues at once. You're playing in your league competition where you 
essentially play a home and home against every other team in the league. In addition to this, you play the sort of single elimination tournament that that the cup. So you you know listeners might be familiar with the FA Cup in 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 England, for example. Um, here uh, in, in France, so like it's all it's an all comers thing. Like every every club exactly. in, in the country plays. Did Man City win everything this year? Was that kind of the deal? They won the triple. Yeah, that's, that right? that's certainly a, a big thing they talk about is winning all these different trophies, okay. right? Okay. And so and so Toulouse, we won this last year, and um, you know part of that's we, we did put together a really great team. Part of this, in some ways, is just luck, right? We didn't have to play any of the. Um, because of the nature of single elimination, we just didn't have to play a bunch, most of the top teams, right? Yeah, and right. So, um, had a really lucky draws. We sort of went through it, and, and just the team came together and played really well. And so, that's just going on in parallel to the season, correct? And it's running sort of at the same time, exa- exactly right. It's fun. So, that you've got this thing going on on the side. You're like getting increasingly excited about as you maintain, as you don't lose. Yeah, it's kind of a really cool thing about soccer that you have these parallel tournaments going on, right? Mm-hmm. Like at, at Milan now, where you will be in. Like Champions League and Serie A, which is the top tier in Italy, and cup matches, and you know sometimes other things that go along as well. Yeah, you know the, the downside of Toulouse winning the cup was that because of that, Toulouse qualified for the Europa League, and so in, in Europe That's you have like, these sort of cross country competitions, right? People will be familiar with the Champions League, which is sort of the top the top teams from each country come together Europa League is sort of like one step down, and then there's Europa Conference League, which is even below that, and so Toulouse qualified for Europa League. Milan qualified for Champions League, and that you know that that actually created a conflict. So, uh, my involvement with Toulouse ended when we right after we won the the French Cup, and and the reason for that is that we've had to sort of totally separate out those two clubs, and so my involvement now is just Milan and and Toulouse is is sort of totally uh, separated. Okay, so there's this conflict of interest rule they have in European soccer. You can't have teams that might possibly compete against each other, and there's some. Europa Champions League crossover in some way? Why is it that there might be this risk of AC Milan playing? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the way it works is actually teams can drop down a level. So oh, really? um, even now, for example, with Milan, if we finish third in our group, through various mechanisms, we actually drop down and, and keep playing, but not in Champions League, in Europa League. Oh, geez, And no so kidding. that's where the challenge sort of these, lies. These, these structures in European sport is, are so different than we have over here. There's so many layers to it. Yeah, it's it's when you're coming from an American perspective, it's super confusing, admittedly, right? When you have all these different leagues and you have promotion relegation, and it's it, it took me a while to get my head around. But of course, people there look at our sports and they're like, "What in the world is going on with these playoffs and this? Wild, like, what is a wild card? Like, how insane <laughs> is that?" Right? So we have our own things, I think, in in yeah. North America that we think of as just second nature you don't even right. question them but. right that's fair i, I once try, began trying to explain the rules of baseball to a group of visiting <laughs> russians and i'd never realized how unbelievably ridiculously convoluted right baseball but i got five minutes into it i kind of gave up yeah so so normally as an adult you don't have to learn in your sport but a couple of years ago i actually had to learn cricket because for various reasons we can get into later but Learning a new sport from scratch is is, <laughs> is challenging because there's a lot of things that you're just like, well, why why are they doing that? Why are mm-hmm. they doing this? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and oftentimes, you know, if you think about what sports are, it's just a it's a simple objective with a bunch of kind of arbitrary constraints, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and it's those arbitrary constraints which make it fun. Yeah, they they, they get tuned to make the game optimally suspenseful or whatever. <laughs> but let's just add that because you guys are also same relatively similar ownership group have not a majority stake in this case, but a minority stake in a big. 
cricket team, right? And yeah. Now that, we're about the top league, the top cricket league in the world, right? Yeah, that, that, that's been really, really fun. So we, we have a small stake in the Rajasthan Royals and then the Indian Premier League, and um, it's just been a, a load of fun. But uh, that, that's been interesting because before that acquisition, I knew nothing about cricket, like absolutely nothing. And so... You know, I was out there watching Netflix, cricket things, trying to learn it, watching YouTube videos, <laughs> like literally punching into YouTube, like cricket r- rules. And, and uh-huh. uh, so I felt uh, I, I learned a lot. And, and in some sense, from the ex- existing owners that, that we sort of came alongside, our relative newness to the sport was actually incredibly valuable, valuable because had this experience in, in some sports that had some similarities, like baseball, like like they're different sports, but there's enough similarities, right, between cricket and baseball that you can actually coming at it with that fresh set of eyes was actually really, really valuable for them. Right, right, right. And then presumably you guys are bringing this analytics orientation and data, or whatever data exists or you created in the sport. What kind of landscape existed in cricket analytics? To what extent were you guys cutting new ground there? Yeah, interestingly, the, the Royals were sort of, always labeled kind of as the money ball team they oh really were, yeah and so so cricket analytics was already a thing but they were sort of at the state that baseball was i'm going to say 15 years ago where they were sort of counting outcomes so i'll use baseball terminology and try and translate to baseball it's, it's kind of like they were using um on base percentage and and batting averages and era and these types of things that, yeah, these are interesting stats and these are things that the public are well aware of, but this is not how baseball teams value mm-hmm. players now, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they were using these things to value players and, and actually early on in, in the in the Royals' uh, tenure, they, they had some success with that. But if you look at where baseball's gone, as, as a very simple example, we might have used to measure batter value using things like home runs and measuring home runs and on-base percentage. Nowadays, it's it's functionally if you know the characteristics of the pitch coming into the batter, so you know the velocity, the exact trajectory, the spin rate, all that kind of stuff, and you know the exit velocity off the bat. As soon as you know that exit velocity off the bat, you're done valuing the batter. Okay, there's some little things like running and so on we can talk about, but um, so the the idea being that if you know sort of the the the, qual- the characteristics of the incoming pitch and the characteristics of the ball off the bat, that's all you need to know to, to value the. the the batter mm-hmm. right whether or not the center fielder like snags the ball over the fence or doesn't and so it's a home run or an out mm-hmm. it's kind of irrelevant from the perspective of the batter so mm-hmm. uh, the baseball has really moved ahead using pitch effects and other data to to isolate the point the temporal moment of value creation for every every single position and that's a hell of a phrase Luke. temporal <laughs> moment of value creation that's really precisely put yeah, and the idea there is that some batters might face easier pitchers than others, and some batters might face different parks than others, and um, sort of other sources of randomness. In some sense, these, this randomness is you want to control for it. You want to remove it as much as possible when you're evaluating the player. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. some of these, most of these things are totally out of out of the batter's control. For example, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's similar with a pitcher, right? It used to be that you would measure a pitcher based on ERA or things like. You know, home runs against and those types of things. Well, now it's literally like as soon as the ball leaves the pitcher's hand, and you know it's at that point. By the way, if, if you know it, the release velocity and the spin rate, you know the trajectory of the ball, you know all that kind of stuff. 
at that point you're done valuing the batter or sorry done valuing the pitcher mm-hmm. right and that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's like a sea change from how people thought about valuing baseball players 15 years ago and, and that same evolution is now hitting cricket where the way we think about valuing the individual talent is is trying to use the same sort of trajectory data uh, it's collected by Hawkeye which is a, a Sony company um, it's largely collected for actually rule keeping purposes so in cricket there's this rule that basically if, if the equivalent of the batter if they if they block the ball from hitting the wickets, you've probably seen these like yeah. these, or these three stumps that sit right behind. If they block those, it, it, they're out essentially. So they they use this technology to basically say like, would the ball have hit and hit these these three? Um, I thought that was the whole point. I thought they were trying to keep the ball from hitting the wickets. They are, but if they get their pad in the way on oh, their legs, as a person, not that with the stick, not with the, what the stick I'm sorry, is fine. Stick is the, the, stick is stick is the right a, word. Uh, it's a bat. But, it's yeah. a bat. It's yeah. a bat. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god! I've got and I'm probably saying the wrong things. Some cricket people are going to listen to this and be like, "This guy has no <laughs> idea what he's talking about." Because I'm sure I'm using all sorts of wrong terminology. So, but Luke, if you say this, the the revolution is happening in cricket now. Is that true? To what extent are you guys fomenting this revolution? To what extent is a revolution at the Royals and not other places? Yeah, it certainly is, right? And, and it's 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 us very much leading the way. Uh, others are there too. I think there's sort of two pieces that we really bring. One is just bringing a lot of the state of the art from um, from other sports. You know, at Zealous, we have we we work across basically all the pro American sports, and so there's a tremendous wealth of knowledge across these sports about how we think about valuing players, how we think about roster construction, how we think about projecting player value, how we think about player development, all those types of things. And bringing all that to, uh, to a team is, 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 you know, is certainly a big part of what we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the portfolio presently, Zealous, Toulouse, though Toulouse is on hiatus at least right now because of this pers- you know, right. rule. AC Milan, the second and the and the the top league in Italy, and then the Royals cricket team. Okay, so this is broadly the portfolio. By the way, <laughs> what about on the research side? Because you've been, you say, an academic. You can do academic research and not have a faculty position. So you've had faculty positions, did your PhD at British Columbia, faculty positions at Harvard, came back to Simon Fraser, got tenure at Simon Fraser, again, a Vancouver school. I think this is Vancouver, right? Vancouver school. You have a zillion grad students. You have a zillion papers or is that still a part of what you're doing the short answer is no it's like it kind of had this phase of my career where I transitioned the short answer is that my last PhD student was Javier Fernandez Javier was the head of analytics for FC Barcelona mm-hmm. he finished his PhD um, it's about two and a half years ago so when he okay. when he defended his thesis that was the end of it and um, okay. I'm quite deliberately at this point not publishing papers and, and a big reason for that is that in the tail end of my academic career, it was all sports analytics research, and mm-hmm. now instead of publishing this stuff, we're we're delivering it to partners. Right, right. Different different way to yeah. the temporal moment of value creation is, <laughs> exactly. is no longer. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's do. It. Let's hear a little bit about how you ended up in this place, because again, it's it's. A, I mean, if I had sat down to do an interview with you four years ago, five years ago. We wouldn't have spent the first, whatever, 20 minutes talking about ownership of professional franchises around the world. That's right. How in the world do you go from, you know, training doctoral students, doing academic research? You got into sports teams, but can we talk about some of the key moments in your development 
and your training and your experience that have led to this particular portfolio? Yeah. So, so I started off wanting to be a prof- professor and actually in a way that's still true. Like when I picture myself as an old man, I picture myself as a professor to this day. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. And I think, you know, this is a very much a tangent, but I, I think at some point I'll probably find some way to make that a Come part of my around. life. And yeah. I absolutely loved teaching, um, working with grad students. I thought, you know, that was just like the highlight of, of my, the sort of few years that I had, particularly at Harvard when I had the, the core of the research group going there that led to all some of the work we talked about earlier. It's, that was like just an amazing few mm-hmm. years. And, and there's aspects of that that I absolutely loved, aspects that I despise, like the, the academic research, the, sorry, the, the publishing process. And, uh-huh. and uh, Well, hold on. To what extent have you, I hadn't thought about this before, but hearing you talk about the way you enjoy bringing people along and that process surely zealous has a little bit of this quality to you because you are the senior chief scientist at zealous you've got a big crew there now you get to hire people from around the world you and doug fearing who help run this thing and then you're pulling good work out of them and training them to some extent you're learning from them i know but at the same time you are the senior person it's not that different from running a lab group, no it? it's, it's really not and in fact if, if you look at my path which was academia and then i worked with in a combination of working in front offices and quantitative gambling. But if you take sort of the, the, the academic part and the working in the front office part, Zealous is like taking the hybrid of those two things, mm-hmm. essentially. So it's, mm-hmm. it's doing what kind of looks like academic research, but maybe you'd think of it as like productionalized research, right? Because we're, we're delivering actual products and, and then doing that for sports teams. So mm-hmm. in a way, it's taking both of these... Um, taking the sort of the Venn diagram and and taking the center of it. We've been talking to Luke Bourne. Luke has done some of the most interesting and important research in sports analytics over the last 10 or 15 years. And now he's doing one of the most interesting jobs in sports analytics. He's an owner of AC Milan and other sports franchises around the world. We will continue with Luke after the break. Come back and join us then. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half. We've been talking to Luke Bourne. Luke Bourne is one of the most respected people in sports analytics. He's one of the nicest guys in sports analytics, and he's put together one of the most interesting careers in sports analytics. I caught up with Luke last week in Sacramento, had a chance to hear a little bit more about what he's working on now and how he managed to get there in a pretty short period of time. Here we go with Luke Bourne. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're referring to your time at Harvard, and I think of that as really the dawn of tracking data in sports. Is that fair for me to say? So, I, and here again, I'll, I'll, con- I'll continue to paint with a broad brush. I think of you and Kirk Goldsberry being somewhere in the same orbit when somebody lands access to the NBA tracking data, and that's the beginning of kind of everything that's, that's right. in this generation of sports analytics. That's right, yeah. There's so much luck involved in where I am now, and, and one of those pieces of luck was um, just happenstance meeting Kurt Goldsberry right as he had been given the tracking data from the NBA. And, uh, you know, he's a geographer, so he he had done a lot of cool visualizations and stuff with it, but really didn't know 
what to do with it. And, and him and I came together. And um, by, by the way, is, we don't need to do the story on how Kirk got the data, but I'm kind of curious what the short version of that is. Why, why is Kirk Goldsberry the person who NBA decided to give data to? So I, I think the short version of it is that is he had done some really cool visualizations prior to that, okay. and it caught some people's okay. eye. And, okay. um, Kirk is an incredible communicator mm-hmm. of quantitative mm-hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone who's read his work knows that that's true, and so. Um, yeah, he got the NBA. So this, there's, I'm very sort of eyes open to the fact that a lot of what drove my early move into sports and a lot of the success I had early on was in some sense the luck of getting this data that no one else had, mm-hmm. right? Like I was on this path of, of studying uh, climate systems and sort of the movement of animals and the herding dynamics and, mm-hmm. and like all those ideas – translated really well to sports but like there's no question had I not had been given that data and had the luck of being given that data there's, there's no way I'd be where I am now it's extraordinary so th- there is the the actual luck of the actual exchange but more broadly there's also the your developmental phase moment happened to line up perfectly when those data come out so you yeah I mean, and I'm not even a sports fan I'm still not so like <laughs> when I, when I got that data for me it wasn't like oh finally I get to work in sports for me it was the richest space-time data I had ever seen. And so it was like, from a scientific perspective, it was the most interesting piece of data I'd ever come across. Yeah, so so just to contrast that for us with some animal data set, and what what level of richness, and what would the animal data set be, and what level of richness would those data have? Yeah, a simple example would be like tracking seals, for example. So what they would do is they would strap GPS units to seals, and, and... and, and multiple seals in, in sort of like a pack of seals, and they would and they would sort of track migration patterns and track their movement and so mm-hmm. on. So you get mm-hmm. these like sporadic, very with a ton of missingness and, and sort of there's there's some interesting herding dynamics, but you know the, the movements of seals are not exactly a pick and roll, you know, in terms of the level of sort of coordinated action. So uh-huh. in not basketball, strategic is that? No, in basketball you get like. Teams are running dozens of sets with very sort of coordinated action and be able to sort of pull those things out and measure a player's, the fact that you have defense, so you're measuring sort of the defender's impact on the, how the offensive team is running their sets. It's just a, the, the, the challenge there. When you have, you know, 10 actors interacting in space and time, it's just, it's just fantastic. And then the density of the data. I mean, you're getting, you're getting you know yeah. where everything's happening multiple times a second. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, right? In the early days, we even got the referees, and, and they sort of wised up to that pretty quickly that we shouldn't be shipping out that data because there's, um, oh wow, you know, they came. You know, there's lots of things you can do with that data, like say, oh, this person should have been able to make that call, right. and they didn't make that call, and those right, things. Right, right. Um, so, what was the chance of meeting between you and Kirk? Like, how would you describe why it is that you bumped into him at this exact moment? So, you want to know how random it was? I I had just been hired at Harvard. I just finished my PhD. I was just about to finish my PhD. And I, I was on a housing visit, so they, you know, they flew me out there to find a house and all that kind of stuff. So what year was it? This is 2012, mm-hmm. and probably April-ish 2012. I'd already been hired, but you know, it started in the summer. And so I'm there, and, and I took a couple of meetings when I was there, and, and got my started to get my office set up and so on. And there was this professor from the geography department, and he was interested in talking to me because he was studying the spread of ancient Chinese literature through historical China by measuring characteristics of texts in different areas of the, of the, of the country. Mm-hmm. And by total fluke, Kirk walked by, and, and I remember the guy I was meeting with, his name was Peter, looked over and said, oh, hey, Kirk, you should meet 
Luke. And Kirk, was, at the time, was sort of a visiting scholar or something at, at, at Harvard. And, yeah, so that, that happenstance meeting... By the way, why were the geographers and the statisticians in the same place? They weren't, but thankfully the, the department chair in the stats department, Li Meng, was broadly connected across the university. And so when, when I interviewed and they had someone... When he, when he sort of realized he had someone come in who was an expert in sort of spatial statistics... He knew that there were a handful of people around the university that would really find value in that. And so mm-hmm. um, right off the bat, I had a dozen or so meetings with people across the university. In their department. So they, their he, department. your chair basically sent you across the department. Which was, if, as an academic, if you want to like the ideal start to an academic career, it's like your department chair sort of saying, hey, there's this person who has these amazing data and problems and, <laughs> and, and they haven't been able to solve them and you'll be able to solve them for them. Right. Right? So right. I got to work on all sorts of cool stuff. What a great quality in a stats chair. Yeah. You, because you, that's, that's what y'all do. You bring these tools and these models and you need interesting problems and data. And so a stat, the perfect stats chair is the one who's connected across the university. Yeah, outside of the stats department. Yeah, exactly, outside the exactly stats right. department. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. Did Kirk say, oh, uh, I just got this interesting data set? I mean, Yeah, he, 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 I think his line was like, I just I, I got this data set, just got it handed. And he's like, I think he might have said, I don't know how to open it. Because I think it came as like a ton of XML files. Um, and Kirk is an incredible like visual visualizer data, but he's not a programmer. Yeah. And so he had people that sort of were helping him with that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, we, we partnered up together and, um, um, and, you know, we became good friends. He actually, when we, when I went on parental leave, him and his wife subletted out our apartment. So we became good mm-hmm. friends, uh, mm-hmm. good friends over time there. Okay, so this is obviously a key moment that pulls you into sports broadly, and it really was the dawn of tracking data and For sports. Sure. That generation of, of, of sports analytics carry us forward from there. So, some, and I, I'm blindly taking steps here. At some point, you end up at AS Roma. But I don't know how you go from there. Yeah, but part of the reason this is confusing for people is because, as is often the case with academics, I sort of lived two parallel lives, right? I often had my academic appointment, and then I was doing something on the side. And that, that was a combination of taking doing it during parental leaves or doing it during unpaid leaves of absences and stuff from the university. So a lot of these things actually overlap. Yep. So um, the, 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 I, was, I was an academic, but through this I had a couple things. So, so I... Um, I, the, the main first thing that I did was I worked, well, we, I did a bunch of consulting for MBA teams. That was sort of while I was still at Harvard. And then I spent um, almost two years with, in quantitative gambling with Bob Vulgaris. So Bob was at the time the biggest NBA gambler and had a, had a team of people sort of building models and, and, and understanding the game of basketball. And so I spent a considerable amount of time with him, learned a ton uh, about modeling sports as well as sort of the, the gambling industry which is part of the reason I left I didn't, didn't, didn't love that side of it is, this is the guy he got in, is, am I right that he got involved with the Mavericks at some point that's right yeah so he he, he was I, I don't know exactly how long but he was certainly yet a, a key person of the Mavericks for a few years and actually a year or two ago he bought a third tier Spanish football club so he's now also in, in, okay. in soccer okay yeah. okay all right. So, what do you consider to be another pivotal moment in your progression from gra- initially grad student, then faculty member, into where you are now? Yeah, I, I had all these sort of consulting type things going on the side. So, I ended up working for a little over a year with AS Roma. That was certainly an opening experience. I think when I moved down to the Kings, for, so so I was living in Vancouver, as you said earlier, I was a professor at Simon Fraser. 
decided that I was going to leave that and do sports full time. And that was like a big transition out of academia because really all the, even though I was doing all these other things in sports, I kind of always had the academic academic thing sort of going either on the side or on leave or whatever. Right. At this point I kind of said, I'm dropping that behind me and, and I'm going to go into sports full time. And why? Sorry, why? Yeah. It's a it's a good question. I think a lot of the things that I I mean, just to be clear, you're leaving a ten year position at a great school in the region of the world that you're from, mm-hmm. and you dabble in these other places, but it's a big decision to walk away from that. So, anyone who's been in academia knows that there's some certainly some pros. There's a lot of pros, and the, and I love the freedom. I still to this day don't think I could ever have a boss again. <laughs> right. um, as as a very simple example, when I was at Harvard, my my wife and I, my daughter, just like up and went and spent six six or seven weeks in Oxford. We didn't have to tell anyone. We just went and, and like spent six, seven weeks working with some colleagues there. And yeah. I just, you didn't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just <laughs> what job allows you to just make those kind of decisions. So, a little spoiled. Uh, abs- a little spoiled. For sure, for sure. And, and I'm preaching to the choir here. I realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of things that I really did not like about academia. I didn't like, I think the 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 information dissemination process, primarily publishing, is like severely broken. Right. Um, so dealing with that and sort of like it just, you know, if, if if I could have been an academic and well, say some say one level deeper on that, like in what way would you say it's broken? The information dissemination process, academic publishing, is broken. In what sense? Yeah. So so the the sort of the peer reviewed um, the peer review process. Has, certainly has some value, but for them beyond some like basic thresholding, it, it's basically like a, adding a random noise to the mm-hmm. to the dissemination process, mm-hmm. a, a random accept reject uh, mm-hmm. step. Um, you you like just you want broader. You want you want some minimum threshold and then broader dissemination and let the market decide, let people exactly. debate, let it get it out there. If it was up to me, I would have we I would have published, done all this work. Um, presented at conferences, posted an archive, and moved on. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and and granted, there are areas of academia that do that. That's how they operate. So, but stats as a whole was very much a. There's these handful of journals, and they want the very specific thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also wanted to be a lot closer to the application. You know, I think when you're when you're in academia, you sometimes feel like I'm doing all this stuff, but I'm really, I'm still like a, I'm it's I'm more than a half step away from the action and. Um, I wanted to sort of dive in full time. And, and mm-hmm. the other thing at the Kings that was really unique there is that Vivek Ranadivi, the owner, had a vision to build out a, an analytics team. And that's something that, even though I'd built a group at Harvard, the idea of saying, okay, they had no analytics person or the person they had there was leaving at the end of the year. And I was going to be able to go in and build something from scratch and be a part of something. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, it didn't quite turn out the way that, that I thought it was going, going to uh, for, for various reasons. Some my own fault, some um, maybe you know, not fully understanding what the role was going to be, but, but at the time, at least it was like, this is a chance to be part of something really mm-hmm. special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that a case where he just planned on investing a little more seriously than most teams that were investing in analytics at the time? And, you know, he has a, had at the time, even a pretty mixed reputation. So you kind of knew what you were dealing with at some level, but it must've been tempting because of the resources and the presumed commitment. And then you did build out a big group, right? Yeah, I actually, so they flew me down to Sacramento and I had done a visit uh, down here. And then um, I remember thinking, okay, they, they they made all these promises of what they want to do and they have this great vision, but 
their actions don't reflect it. They had DeMarcus Cousins at the time. Um, they're like, this, they're, they're going to be stuck in this rut forever. And literally like three days after my visit, they traded DeMarcus Cousins. <laughs> and I was like, okay, maybe this is real. Like they had this star player who was, um, you know, a good player, but was, was certainly limiting their ability to take the next step. And mm-hmm. so um, I thought, okay, that's interesting. And, and, and at the time, I, the other conversation I had with my wife was like, our kids are still quite young at the time they were like five three and one and so there's no no issue with moving them and if we come and i do my three-year contract and i move back to vancouver kind of no harm done uh-huh. even sfu even held the spot for me so i was technically on leave for those few years so okay. i mentioned earlier that i had left academia that's not quite true you, you, know, had, you had a, you had a backup plan if yeah exactly and, and yeah that's just the way I, I tend to always think about the various options and for me it was just like a pretty low risk yeah it makes all the sense in the world and you get to and you get to discover whether that's something you want to keep going into and in the end what i discovered was that i can't work for a front office if i'm gonna do this i need to be the owner okay those are ballsy words to say (laughs) yeah well i mean it's one thing to say that but then i mean i'm sure many people have felt that and didn't subsequently become owners so that's a heck of a yeah, well, there's, of course, a, a, the gap there is like about a billion dollars, right? <laughs> and so... There are barriers. In it's, it. it's, it's totally understandable why people might think that and see it's insurmountable. It, ultimately, if you, if you have the vision, you have the expertise, and you can find the right partners and then find the right financial backing, it's, it's possible, right? There are mm-hmm. other people that have done this, right? So um, the folks that bought Southampton, for example... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, about a year ago this was essentially someone who was working for a club and said I'm going to go raise some capital and buy a team and he found found a couple hundred million bucks of people who wanted to invest and back him and went out and bought the team and so okay that it makes sense but there have to be reasons that a group like that wants to invest in a person so that that person had a story to tell of some kind or a track record of some kind yeah exactly it's, it's all that and, and look it's, it's not just me right we have a group of people together that have a, a broad set of expertise everything from you know what I do player management um, roster construction through to others who have expertise in stadium builds and, and commercial ops so it was sort of the whole package of people mm-hmm. with this, these various experiences and, mm-hmm. and also you know we talked about Milan we didn't go out and buy Milan day one right we started off with a much um smaller initial foray into this which was which was to lose and so we were able to um sort of test our hypothesis in a way and mm-hmm. and, and learn a lot from that early experience without without sort of putting a billion plus dollars on the line look you guys were you guys looked around for a long time before you found the right opportunity at the time there weren't i don't you this is the question how many investor groups like yourselves were doing that at the time and how many are doing it now it seems to me that there's been a sea change and now you know hell now making freaking tv shows about these kinds of things um i feel like y'all got in a little bit ahead of the wave on this we, we did a little bit but this has been going on for some time in fact this is one thing that we've really had to reality check a little bit because we went in with all these theses about how we were going to get an edge and how we were going to be financially sustainable, how we were, how we were going to win and create a financial return for investors, all that kind of stuff, right? But then we had to be eyes wide open that there were dozens, maybe even 100 plus, but certainly dozens of American investors with fundamentally the same thesis or, or who had said the same thing before us and had just lo- totally lost their shirts. Okay. So, you know, in Americans who had gone in, bought a club, 
wrote checks for tens, twenty, thirty million every year for four or five years, and then eventually said, "I'm done. I'm out of here." And okay, hold on. Let me let me short a little bit. Is it possible that these are just this is just dumb American money or dumb anybody's money? And and what differentiates you guys is that you had a couple guys who could actually operate a club yeah, but, from a from a sharp angle. Yeah, that's like that's that's the story I would tell. But the truth is that you have to realize that every human being is inherently overconfident in their own abilities. So we also have to realize that we ourselves are going to be overconfident about our own abilities. And sort of, even though we might think we have a bulletproof thesis, realize that there's a lot of like unknown unknowns and a lot of things that we're just going to be wrong on. And how, you say that from the comfort of having been successful with Toulouse, or were, yeah, you, like saying we, it, were been, you saying it in real time? <laughs> we were definitely saying it in real time, and, and, and that's part of the reason we started with Toulouse, like started with this sort of pretty heavily distressed asset and something that we felt that we could really put our fingerprint on and, and something that we could work hard at and make some mistakes. And, and um, So, yeah, some of this is certainly hindsight bias, right, looking back and saying, oh, yeah, this is exactly why we did what we did. But at the time, definitely, we were... Um, we were confident in, in in our ability to create success, but also um, very very sort of cognizant of of the history before us, and making sure that we were in a position to sort of pivot. Maybe pivot isn't the right word, but we were in a position to sort of adapt as quickly as we could on on the people. Look, we we were very much of the thesis that if we can write the finances of this club then we're fine because teams go wrong typically in two ways right or owners go in two, typically one of two things goes wrong one they get the financial house in order and then they make bad on-field decisions and then they get unlike north american sports you have relegation yeah. so if you if you right size the budget but you do poorly if you just keep losing you will get relegated and relegated and relegated again well, and one relegation is enough to kill your revenue right there's major revenue consequences major revenue consequences so that in a way even though you get the financial situation right in the short term in the long term your financial situation is really really perilous the other way this goes wrong is uh, they actually you can make great financial or great sorry great football decisions or great sporting decisions if you're having to write checks for 10 million 50 million every single year mm-hmm. you're just not going to get a return on your investment mm-hmm. so when, when people talk about a club being sustainable in my mind that is fundamentally it it's it's creating a club which does not require consistent injection cash injections from the owner and you know that is a club that's going to be more um resilient long term mm-hmm. look it's, it's 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 endlessly fascinating for me to sit here and hear you talk as an owner because it is so different from past conversations with you when we're talking analytics basically what have you learned about your own shift in perspective as you go from being the analyst to the owner and i've long held a a theory that it's easy to be certain about your model and critical of those who don't adopt the model when you're just the advisor as analysts are and as i am as an analyst in many situations and it's a whole different thing when you're the actual decision maker i don't know if i'm right but it just feels like it it seems harder to to act on the model if you're actually the decision maker than one who built the model and believes in the model and is is suggesting the model yeah yeah this is this is a great point right i think a lot of times people in the sports analytics communities look at the they might be, let's say, an analyst for a team might look at the people above them making the decision, which they might think of as the wrong decision, and think, 
what an idiot. How did they make that decision? Like the data was so clear that we should have done X and they went and did Y. And not understanding that that that, that person, the, the, first off, that there's various competing demands on that on the decision that potentially you're not privy to. Um, but second off, the, the, the various pressures and the media and all that kind of stuff just create a really challenging environment in which to make decisions. And, and I think that's why ultimately to run a team really successfully, you kind of need to be a bit psychopathic, right? Like you need to be a bit weird because... What, what, what version of psychopathy? <laughs> well, I got many. But, uh, you know, as, as a very simple example, I, I try not to watch our matches live. And the reason for that is that when, when, when our group will, when anyone tend to watch these matches live, you tend to, first off, you tend to absorb information sort of not uniformly across the match, but in sort of really tense emotional situations. Those are the ones you remember. And Oh, that's it, interesting. You're enco- you think you're encoding the data differently because of your emotions if you're experiencing it real time. In a way, it's wow. also that I want to see the data before I view it because I think the data in some <laughs> sense is like the, our best notion of truth and, okay. and human perception is like extremely biased. So I want as much, incent- as much as possible take the human emotion out of... Okay, of- there, are lots of, there are lots of traditionalists who would say you're going to miss the key bits and you gotta, you got to watch the tape or whatever. Yeah. So you're not going to refute that you're just going to say no I want the foundation to be the data I want to start with what is probably closer to the truth I trust right. that better than I do especially your models data right. I trust that better than whatever I'm going to see intuitively real time especially in the heat of the moment yeah you said that really well which is that humans there's a there's a tremendous variety of ways that we can be biased when we're when we're placing values on on athletes on a pitch with all these sort of dynamics that are going on all the emotions that are going on and as much as possible i'm trying to a let a let the data be sort of the foundation and then make sure that when we're actually watching the video and using our eye on top of it primarily by the way not necessarily to like say to catch something necessarily on top of the data, but oftentimes we're sort of watching it to say, is there ways that the data could be misleading here? Mm-hmm. You oftentimes get in scenarios where, okay, this team plays a really unique style, and because of the nature of the style that they play, this player is being put in situations that on most teams he wouldn't be put in, for mm-hmm. example, and the data might not pick that up. So that's a mm-hmm. lot of, of what you're watching for. And then there's things like technique and so on um, that you're picking up as well. But for the most part, you want to be doing that in as rational estate as possible mm-hmm. so so is it the case Luke, that sometimes you are surprised and you learn something about you learn something about mistakes of, of a sort or a bias in your data or a hole in your data by having consumed them ahead of time and then you watch the game and go, oh, that didn't happen the way i thought it was going to happen and maybe i've learned something about my model by that yeah that's it i've done that many times where you watch a game live and then you rewatch it and coaches do this all the time and the reason they do it is because when you rewatch, you see things like fundamentally differently mm-hmm. right you could be mm-hmm. largely because you're um you're you know you're differing emotional state right mm-hmm. it's like when you're driving down the highway, like let's say you have hours to get somewhere and you're just like, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to maybe hit up Starbucks on the way. And, and you're just sort of in the right lane and you're going a few of the speed lane, and someone's riding you from behind, right? And you're like, what is their rush? Like, <laughs> like just chill, man. Like, it's okay. You're, you're going to get where you're going to go eventually. And con- conversely, if, if you got to get your kid to school and it's, you, they're going to be three minutes late or whatever and the, they're going to get a tardy and you got to get there. 
you're the one riding the bike and you're like, hurry up, hurry up, right? So it's amazing how your mental state can drastically shift your perception around what's going on. Mm-hmm. That's like a very sort of simplified example. But of course, you take that to sports and as much as possible, you want to sort of control for that emotional state and try and uh, do that squad valuation, player valuation, in, in, in general, do those types of studies in a much better emotional state than being in a stadium with 70,000 other people screaming. Well, this makes me wonder about the difference in ownership challenges between Toulouse and AC Milan, because these are very different environments. And even though Toulouse is now League One, it's still France's top league's probably not the same as Italy's, but AC Milan is one of the brand names in world soccer. They get a little more attention. Yeah. So does it just exacerbate all the challenges of being objective in this way? Yeah. In, in Toulouse, we very much had a had a blank canvas. Right. We 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 went in there. They'd just been relegated. All the sort of core management had left, and and we were able to do exactly what we wanted to do from the beginning. And and look, Toulouse is a big club, but it's 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 not to the level of Milan in the sense of the level of sort of media pressure and so on, right? Milan is just a, they call it a three paper town where there's like multiple newspapers all writing about the same team. Right. And so that just creates a a pretty crazy environment. And so you're absolutely right that, that I think there's two big pieces that, that have made it fundamentally different. One is all that additional pressure that comes from it being a club of this size and with this much media scrutiny and, and so on. And the second is just, that it's a it's a big machine and it's there's a lot of staff and there's a lot of processes that are in place and mm-hmm. you know we we acquired the team right after they won the league so like you know we bought Toulouse right after they've been relegated and they were sort of a distressed asset in contrast Milan was at the absolute peak when we when we acquired them so a very very different situation so you're not going to go into that and and blow this thing up and 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 change things drastically right so this is why year one we essentially just observed right we took our time like there's this team had just won let's understand what's made what what of the things that they're doing are successful and and are productive and and which of the things aren't and let's let's sort of take it slowly so that's probably the the biggest difference is is because of those nuances at milan it's been a much sort of slower process Mm -hmm. okay so you're new ish into the ownership thing this may be a better question for down the road but i'm curious you just described it as as more pressure because it's a three newspaper town and whatever bigger bigger market is it necessarily the case and why would that be that it's harder to follow the processes that you guys would like to follow if the pressure is greater why, why is it that pressure, you know what's right, and in this case I'm not going to say analytics because really what we're talking about is decision processes and yeah. guidelines and y'all have your way of doing a business. And it's interesting to me, I, I think it's, it's intuitive, but I don't really understand why that greater pressure would make it harder to follow processes that you believe to your core. <laughs> uh, yeah, you'd think that's true, right? And, and I think from my perspective it is true, but... When you when you're running a football club, you know I, there's multiple stakeholders, and in the end you have to work together with all those stakeholders. And those stakeholders include the, of course, the ownerships and financial stakeholders. But football clubs are not just businesses; they're also community resources in some sense, and these community assets. And the fans themselves are like a stakeholder of, the, of these clubs, right? So you sort mm-hmm. of have all these various um, uh, people who are involved, and so you're. I don't think it's right to say you're appeasing all of them, but you sort of have to deal with all those dynamics that, that comes with it. And so you're right. In, in theory, it shouldn't matter. If you know the right way to make decisions and the right way to go about running the club, it, it shouldn't really matter. But, you know, as you're well aware, 
often the, the status quo, because what we're doing is in some sense different than the status quo. If you're wrong, and especially if you're wrong in a way where you're using data or you're doing things that are a little bit different. By the way, everyone uses data. So to say we don't and others do now is kind of ridiculous. But if you're doing it in a way which is somehow being perceived as different, then as soon as things go wrong, it'll be that's the reason. Like, like I've been in front offices long enough to know that scouts can be wrong day in, day out, and, and no one cares. But the statistical model, as soon as it's wrong on a player once, it's useless. Mm-hmm. Right, like you've obviously written about this in in the fact that people have treat algorithms in statistical models very differently than they do humans, even though there's just a multitude of studies showing that algorithms are just so much better at valuing talent than humans are. Okay, podcast listeners, that was the end of the second half of the show on SiriusXM this week. However, we have an overtime segment because I continued the conversation with Luke Bourne another 10 minutes or so and we thought there were some bits in there that you guys might enjoy so a special overtime Wharton Moneyball after the break welcome to Wharton Moneyball this is Cade Massey hosting this week and I am hosting on my own as all three guys are out and about doing other things I have got the hour to myself and I decided to do an interview with Luke Bourne. Luke Bourne is one of the most respected people in sports analytics. He's one of the nicest guys in sports analytics, and he's put together one of the most interesting careers in sports analytics. I caught up with Luke last week in Sacramento, had a chance to hear a little bit more about what he's working on now and how he managed to get there in a pretty short period of time. Here we go with Luke Bourne. Where do you see edges right now? You've got... You've been in the industry for a long time. You've seen the edges change. You've been in multiple sports. You're an owner in multiple sports right now. I remember sitting in a small conference in the early 2000s in, in spring training Arizona when we, we, we had Billy Bean in to talk with us for a little bit, and I remember him saying, you know, we're just picking up dollars. They're just laying around, we're picking up dollars. And we pushed him a little bit and said, well, you know, as the market evolves, what happens? He's like, well, then we'll pick up quarters. I'm curious where you're seeing dollars, where you're seeing quarters, and especially as you start playing in different sports, and especially as you've seen different technologies come up. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting analogy because, of course, Billy, in many years in in baseball, probably saw those edges go from dollars to quarters to nickels to Mm -hmm. to pennies, and uh, and it's well publicized that he's sort of made transition to to soccer and so he probably realized hey if i go to europe there's 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 euros on the ground again it's, it's, right. not, it's right. not quarters right if, the, if there's no more dollars in baseball i'm gonna change sports <laughs> exactly right so you know part of it is that even even take baseball for example the the well the first thing to note is like the best edge in any sport is luck hmm. right is it an edge i mean yeah well it, it, if you define an edge as as something which makes gives you competitive advantage over your peers, then yeah, I will take luck over process any day. Okay. Fair fact, I'm pretty sure there's some quotes about that, right? I'd rather be lucky. Lucky than, than good. good. Right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And in sports, it's like certainly true that the amount of variability, um, you know, for, for golfers, for example, the, the person that wins a tournament in any given week is typically the player that putts well, yeah. but the player that wins in the long run is typically the player that strikes the ball well. Yeah. And, and, and the, the putting is because the putting is super random. Yeah. It's week to week, right? It, well, it's more that it's even, there's other, these, there are other big swings, especially in like American football, where the first order of, the first factor for variance is luck. Yeah. And then the next is 
quarterback, which is a huge <laughs> yeah. factor. And then yeah. our little edges that we focus on, you're just a little bit here. And then if you get the three of them stacked up, it's a little bit right. more. But they're really small. You're saying they're really small compared to things breaking your way. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but if you sort of think about the things you can control, baseball is always a good example, right? Because it's sort of a decade or two ahead of the other sports. The, the first thing is just getting player valuation right. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you like make it, it was true in baseball 10 plus years ago. I think it's still true in a lot of other sports. You can do the absolute simplest things like, you know, treating a team as the sum of the parts Just say it's, you know, the quality of player a plus the quality of player B. And that's like, you know, add those up and think of that's the quality of team. You get really close to the, to the truth. If, if you do well at valuing each of those individual components, you'll, you'll, I think that still is the biggest, um, edge that exists in most other sports i think baseball is probably excluded baseball is quite smart but um and i think in most other sports it's actually that the data and modeling is actually at that level where we can do that but the the execution is not there so it's still taking a while sort of culturally for teams to come what's ex- what's execution in this case making decisions on those models and on those best practices rather than sort of the status quo of, of human mm-hmm. perception mm-hmm. um and then you so look. Does that mean the edge to be had there is more organizational than analytic? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, um, I don't think there's like. Look, we can get better at valuing players in, in in other sports. That's that's certainly true, and and baseball has proven that to be true. That as new data has come along and, and more sophisticated statistical techniques have come along, we're able to do really really well at valuing players and in a way which wasn't true 10 years ago but still if you're not executing on it what's the point mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so and then you go to there, there's a few other areas like the, the main one that stands out in my head is, is player development right mm-hmm. we have figured out how let me take a very simple example right in golf okay golf has been around for a long time but only in the last it's on it feels like the last there are th- three four years have people realized that with sort of deliberate training, you can hit the ball farther. If you if you if you do a combination of going to the gym and basically swinging these clubs that are sort of lighter and heavier than your than your mm-hmm. clubs, you can easily add 10, 20 yards to your drive. Mm-hmm. That's actually tremendously valuable, mm-hmm. right? So that same idea, by the way, applies to pitching. So if you mm-hmm. if you look at Driveline or some of these companies that 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 look at player development baseball they have these guys throwing lighter baseballs heavier baseballs and they can add velo Mm -hmm. to their to their pitches so Mm -hmm. if you can take a college pitcher and add two miles an hour to his fastball that's insanely valuable right this feels like the kind of thing that the astros figured out before some of the other i'm sure yeah the rays i think were there the rays were early okay yeah um and you know your your poor Canadian heritage means that you're not a college football fan, probably. But college, some colleges, some college staffs are known for developing players, and it really differentiates some programs from other ones. Um, what in 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 all the work that you guys are doing? This is related to the edge thing, but it's a it's a more general question. What's the scarcest resource you have? Like what what do you what would you most like to have more of? than you have right now money okay other, <laughs> other, than, other, than, no, other than money yeah i really i think you don't have enough money you only you only have part of the ownership group that bought acm a lot last year <laughs> well in in, in the, the the money thing is that you know we're, you're always if you're running a good business you're always operating under constrained resources you just have to be right and that's 
uh, time and money are kind of interchangeable in the sense that you can create time by hiring people and you know and, and so on. Um, our, our finest resource is is I would say that's a good it's a it's a really interesting question. If I take it purely from a performance perspective, from a performance performance perspective, like an on field performance perspective. If I get yeah, maybe the simplest thing is is minutes. Just that's maybe not a perfect answer. If I thought about it some more, but our most constrained resource is information about our own players and other players. If I could, if I could, instead of seeing. 38 matches for our teams if I could see 500 matches for mm-hmm. our teams or like a 150 plus like they get in baseball mm-hmm. it would allow me to so much better value players value squads value tactics and be, that's not just a data thing by the way that's a scouting thing as well if you give a scout more games to watch you're going to get better information mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so I would say it's that it's it's, it's fundamentally if, if you want the nerdy answer it's sample size yeah 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 yeah. is there any hope there because I mean, it, it does feel like by partitioning a soccer match ever finer, you've essentially addressed that issue to some extent. Yeah, these you, things are not independent. You're, you're exactly right, because a big part of it is the the better you can measure things at the sort of fine grain level, the the less data you need. Like the baseball is a good example of that, right? If you if you can't measure a pitcher's velocity, you have to watch them pitch against thousands of batters before you understand if they're a good pitcher or not. Mm-hmm. But if you put a radar gun on them and all of a sudden you see, oh, they're throwing it whatever is good 96 miles an hour or whatever you immediately know that pitcher is good yeah yeah yeah. right it's like similar in 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 soccer if you want to see if a a keeper is good if you had really finite really sort of precise ways of measuring their positioning and their ground forces as they jump and their reaction time all those things you could measure a keeper's skill much quicker than if you had to wait for them to face hundreds or thousands of shots to tell whether they're a good or bad shot stopper right so you need to understand that creators are a value. Back to the, what was the phrase again? Temporal moment exactly of value creation. Like, yeah, Temporal moment of value creation are the processes of value creation. Exactly. If you understand those things better and then learn how to measure them, you can get away with weaker, with weaker or smaller sample sizes. Yeah, and it's the simplest way, I think, to think about that is you're just removing sources of noise, right? Because mm-hmm. if you can really isolate the, the moment of value creation, you're just you're taking something that was super noisy before and you're just stripping it down to the thing that really matters so you can measure it much more precisely with much less data. Okay. Luke, I'm going to have to let you get out of here. I've kept you late on a weeknight, and, <laughs> but we are in your hometown, but I need to get you cut loose. One question. You said this thing in passing a moment ago. You said you're still not very much of a sports fan. I'm curious what sports you're most into or what sport you're most enthusiastic about. Outside of the teams that you have ownership interests in, where are your interests or enthusiasms or passions or biases strongest in sports? Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. You know, I watch a lot of film, and I and that's for a combination of you know traditional scouting and improving our models and so on. So you sort of like you you sit in, in a bleacher watching uh, soccer, or what, a lot of times these days it's watching on a screen, right? And so, interestingly enough, for or for me at least. The sports that catch my attention are the sports that I want to do, and for mo- the most part, these days it's getting outside. So, whether that's golf or tennis or just getting, some, you know, I spend so much of my life these days on Zoom and whatever, staring at a screen. That yeah. um, I just love any sport that sort of gets me outside and move my body. So, okay, 
That'll be my answer. Okay, good enough. All right, man. Good luck to you with all this stuff. It's so much fun. Look yeah, forward to hearing you. more about it down the road, but appreciate you making time for it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Okay, that is our show for the week. And that was a conversation with Luke Bourne, one of our favorite people in sports analytics, one of the most impressive people in sports analytics. <laughs> want to thank him for the time on behalf of the whole team here, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Wanner. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, Enjoy your sports.